Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mentzel, a.k.a. Menners. And joining me for this show, I have three guests. I have my assistant, James McSmith. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me, Menners. I'm humbled to be here. And I have one of the original panellists on the Australian Cricket Podcast. Welcome back, Joe. How are you, Joe? Menners, great to be here. And it's been uh, so encouraging to see the growth of the Australian Cricket Podcast and the uh, quality in terms of both sound quality guests um, that you've had on lately. I've been uh, really enjoying it. Yeah, great to have you back, Joe. And we have a very special guest for this show. He's the cricket writer for AAP. Welcome, Rob Forsyth. How are you, Rob? Thank you, Andrew. I'm, I'm doing very well and happy to be making my debut here. Yeah, welcome to the show. Great to have a cricket writer here that who's been at all the games. You've covered World Cup. You've been at all the tests this summer. So you've had a great vantage point for all the actions going on. How have you seen this 2-1 series result for South Africa so far? A great victory for them? Yeah, it's been um, it was a very interesting series, wasn't it? I think at the start of summer, there was a, as there always is, a mix of optimism and pessimism. And uh, clearly the, the pessimists were spot on, given what happened in, um, in Perth and Hobart. Um, I suppose it, you know we'll only know with time what um, just how much that Adelaide Oval result meant, whether it's sort of a, a proper turnaround or um, yeah. Yeah, on that point, I'm just getting a little bit concerned that we've uh, got a bit ahead of ourselves with the result in Adelaide. Just read this morning that Steve Smith is talking about some of these guys being in the team for the next ten years. Um, you know, given the the performance in Adelaide of the you know the particularly the three young batsmen, I guess Hanscom was a a fairly good performance, but the other two, I don't think there's too much to hang their hats on. I know we'll unpack that a little bit further, Manners, but uh, you know, I, I think there's a I love long the term way to go. unpack in a podcast. It's one of my favourites. Look, I think you're right, and I think we're all Aussies here, and I'm going to say it right now. 
we have lost to the Poms last year. We've lost to the Saffers this year. It doesn't get any worse. I mean, two of our arch rivals have basically caned us two years on a trot. It's a bad run for Australian cricket. You can sugarcoat this sort of comeback win, but this is an amazing result for South Africa to come here and win three series in a row. England and South Africa have now convincingly beat us and at times humiliated us. I mean, how do you guys feel as Australian fans? Is this, we could, it's like our lowest ebb at the moment. I feel like we've dropped our standards. I mean, you, know, you take young Renshaw, for example, being lauded for simply you know, seeing out the new ball. Since when was that the standard which we held Australian opening batsmen till? You know, in, in the previous era, um, you know, it was perform, it was score, you know, hundreds or, or be moved on, whereas it seems now we've completely dropped our standards. Interesting, one of the first things Lehman did when he came in was ditch Ed Cowan as opener because he wasn't aggressive enough. And two years later or three years later, sort of the wheel's gone full circle and we've got gone back to a conservative opener. Yeah, exactly. Apparently being able to leave a, a ball outside off stump now is, is sort of the, the marker of a great test opener. That's a very good point about Ed Cowan, man. As I, he's obviously a big friend of the podcast, Ed. And I think that's a fantastic point. Um, I just, I think, I'm, I can't believe it, but I'm agreeing very much with Joe here. I think it's very much a case of dead cat bounce mm. in Adelaide. And I think anyone who knows anything Another about... Another one of your great animal terms <laughs> that you relate to cricket, ducks or drakes. Well, mate, anyone who knows anything about psychology will tell you that, you know, Lanka, sorry, South Africa had won the series. Australia had a lot more to play for. So I don't know if there's anything that we can really read too much into that. And Rob, I'd love to ask you, mate, about, you know, Menas one of Menas's most famous predictions is that Sean Marsh was going to score six thousand Test runs. Peter and one of my other ones is that Matt Hayden will never make it as a <laughs> Test batsman. And thirty Test hundreds later, I was proved wrong. I'm just want Rob. You know, let's go. I mean, you know, uh, Joe said we unpack them. Peter Hanscom. Where I mean, he, he's what? what do you, will he score six thousand Test runs for Australia? What do you think? That's a lot of runs. Um... I don't know if he'll score 6,000. I imagine, I think he'll probably will be in the test team a fair bit over the next, you know, five or ten years. Um, I'd say probably of the three of those that debuted, along with Matt, that he's probably got the, the greatest chance the way he sort of... I mean, it was a, a reasonably impressive debut. I know, as you say, we sort of lowered the bar a little bit, but it was quite a um, a decent half century when the game was, was in the balance a little bit. What about his technique because he Ian Chappell spoke about his technical issues what about those mate yeah and I suppose that you know you look early on when he looked like getting out a couple of times in that that first over and it's just such a fickle game isn't it like well I sort of draw parallels with Hanscom and Steve Smith Mm. when Steve Smith came on the scene his technique is not conventional and people were asking the same questions that are being asked about Hanscom he seems to play from the crease he doesn't get forward or back you know, he doesn't seem to get way forward, but he does have a balance and a flow to him that reminds me of Smith. You know, he seems to get in the right positions if it seems to get there in a sort of a way that's not conventional. And it's, you know, whatever works for you works for you. If he's able to score runs consistently, then, you know, fair go to him. The, the bigger question for me is, have we thrown out the whole notion of having done your apprenticeship at Shield level? I mean, you know, I think Renshaw had played 12 first-class games before being picked for Australia. Um, you know, I think the, at the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, they had previously picked a guy like Ferguson who had been a, you know, had mixed um, performances at first class level over a long period of time. Have we kind of swung too far to the other way 
to and you know I think Smith as I as I alluded to has suggested that you know there's a a new era has emerged I I don't see that happening it's not like we've seen a a Pup Clark or a Ricky Ponting who were just precocious talents emerge we've seen guys who you know may or may not make it depending on you know the the next you know five tests well, I mean, there were some questionable selections for this test match. And let's talk about one. Yeah. Nick Maddinson, he comes in with a first-class average of under 40, which is, you know, probably not good enough to earn you no, a test call-up. And he missed a straight one, effectively, and was bowled was through a good Mate, that was a mm. cracker was a cracking delivery. Ball. Mm. That was a it, fantastic it, delivery. I know you mate Darren Berry had a crack at him, but that was just about as close to unplayable as it gets. Well, what do you think about moving forward at number six? Is Maddinson the man to invest in long term, or should we look at bringing someone like Maxwell in for the tour of India? Well, I, I don't like Maxwell. I, I mean, I've never seen Maxwell as having the kind of application required to be a, a, a test batsman. Um, but by the same token, I think his his numbers stack up against anyone first class level over the last couple of years. I think it's it, look the 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 notion that you need to average you know forty eight plus at first class level to be considered to be a, a test batsman has, has now gone out the window. I mean, I think we've seen averages down at, at first class level across the board. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if you know, you, you've got a view on what the kind of new standard should be. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was really, it was almost unprecedented times after um, after Hobart, wasn't it? Like just the, you did have selectors come in and say, well, we're going to do things on gut feel and have a punt on a few few youngsters here. Um, and I don't mind it, particularly someone like Matt, who is just so young, 20 years old. If they do get it right, he's going to be there for, you know, 10, almost 15 years. Um, there's an upside to that when they get it right. There's obviously a, a fair downside when they get it wrong. And we won't really know until, um, you know, a little bit longer, will we? I think to answer your question, yeah. Joe, a shield average of around 45 should be good enough to get you in the Australian side. I said on a few shows ago, the way the Shield is now played at the beginning and the end of the season, I don't think players can average 50 as consistently as they used to at Shield level. So I'm happy if a player's been consistent around that 40, 45 mark. But before we move on and keep talking about our players, I just, I got a lot of stick from listeners about the fact that maybe we glossed over how good South Africa were in the series. And I just want, before we keep going and unpacking, as you say, the Aussie mm. players, I just want to touch on man, the man, fact that they, South were Africa they, were deserving winners. But were they that good or were we that bad? I think their bowling at times was that good. Obviously, they exposed some severe flaws, but I think it was a tremendous all-round team performance. Young players stood up. You know, Amla, Stain, De Villiers were absent, and yet they thrashed us. I mean, it is a great achievement in modern sport. Teams so often go overseas and struggle, and they've bucked that trend. And how rare is it for you to see that, you know, everyone in the 11 contribute at some point in the series? Like even Stephen Cook was someone who was getting so much criticism, comes out and scores a ton in the um, their final innings. I think that was just about the ugliest ton well, I've seen. Talk since. about a dodgy technique. Well, Matthew Hayden wow. scored that one against the West Indies, his first one when he must have got dropped about seven times. So that, that's not one for the for the textbooks, that Stephen Cook. But like you say, Rob, that was much needed. And, you know, if they'd scored a few more runs, it could have won them the game. And you know, someone like that to contribute. Yeah, It's a really good point you make, though, Menas. Um, I, I think that what South Africa have been able to achieve is you see somebody like Stain go down or, or Morkel, and, you know, they've brought in Rabada and... I mean, Rabada took 15 wickets, Abbott took 13 wickets in two matches, and Philander took 12 wickets. I mean, those three combined to just destroy our top order. 
Yeah, I mean, and and you know, De Kock is is clearly going to play a very important role in in that team for the next kind of ten years. So, look, it's it's almost the opposite problem to what we've had, which is the the right players are putting their hand up, um, and they've clearly got succession sorted out. I don't know whether that has been a, a planned thing or whether it's it's luck that the the right sort of players have emerged. But certainly, there's some huge talent in that South African lineup. And you look at the series from an Australian perspective, the, the Aussie stats, if you'd have picked out the top three run scorers and top two wicket takers for Australia, it is 100% on script. Uh, Kawaja, Smith and Warner scored the most runs and Stark and Hazelwood took the most wickets, but they just didn't get the support from the rest of the team and it was they just needed support from those younger players and didn't happen. And let's say, I mean, imagine this was a five-test series, you know, that... that South Africa demolished us in the first two tests. We've bounced back with a new team in the in the third test. You know, imagine we're going to Melbourne with this test series. I mean, I just it's just, it's just a bit disappointing that there's not another test. Well, that's the to come along and the fault. Yeah. They won't they, they won't give up their home cricket the, season for a better yeah. season here. Well, if you, I mean, if you're talking about making money and yeah, generating cricket, surely a five test series here is is more interesting than the three test. Hadley Trophy. I mean, Hadley. Rob, you were pretty close to the South African team and covering them. Do you think they dropped off a bit in that, the Adelaide test? Do you think there was a, a lessening in intensity after they secured the series? Well, I think probably the, the Faf situation, and I can't remember if it was Faf himself or the coach admitted it wasn't really ideal preparation that week before and that it was just such a circus, regardless of what you think and whether it was, you know, him, he was right to be in that position and scrutiny and et cetera, et cetera. It, it was a distraction. It would have impacted their preparation. The whole Faf situation has given me a lot of cause for soul searching you know we came quite hard on the podcast about faf uh saying that basically he was a cheat and he should be suspended yeah. i think they were our exact well, he, has words. Been, he was found guilty man huh? but but i think what's been really interesting is that other test captains have sort of come to the table to say we're all doing it you know the difference between ball shining ball tampering um you know it was a the the i guess the the other sort of cricket community spoke with one voice that they didn't see it necessarily as a as a such a crime I, I, but i think it's a fact that not that they didn't speak that perhaps no one came out not no one really came out and threw a bucket load at faff did they because they might have been seen as being hypocritical that was probably was that what you're saying there was the silence on the issue as much as anything yeah not just silence i think a lot of people said that you know they use sun cream or lip balm to the same effect um, and, and I think what what came of it was that we really need to clarify the law, I think, is what really came out of it, is that, you know, the, it's a very grey area. Yeah, I think a few things came out of it. The ICC dropping the ball on an issue is no surprise. And But the, the thing that for me really sticks out, and when I did this soul searching, I realised I was actually being clouded by all this you know, emails from listeners and faff defenders and faff apologists. If you do something wrong and you get caught, you pay the price. And if faff was so stupid to stick his tongue out with the lolly like that, he can say what he likes, everything else is irrelevant, you did something wrong and you got caught. Accept it, move on. And I think the fact that he, he hasn't accepted it and he's appealing again, it just makes him look even worse. But, man, is that's the modern athlete. They never admit they're wrong. Look at Maria Sharapova. She's got caught red-handed using drugs and appeals it and complains. You know, that's just, they're so pampered. They're, that's the world they live in. They're never wrong. Yeah, what would you do, Rob? Would you just say rub Faf out for a year, chuck um, him out of the game? 
I don't know about a year. I, the appeal will be really interesting because they've now got the power to put in a, um, a punishment which is lesser or, or more harsh. So he is risking, uh, you know, copying a suspension now by, by appealing it. So it shows you how, um, how strongly he feels uh, right about this. Now, we're going to do a little straw poll here. What do we think of the Aussie crowd booing Faf when he came out to bat? Some people think it's unsportsmanlike to boo uh, an opposing captain or an opposing player. Uh, where do you guys sit? And I will admit, I was one of the people booing in Adelaide. <laughs> Only because Macca kept texting me going, you better boo Faf. You're booing for me. Look, I'll start. Look, I mean, you, you pay your money to go to the game. You know, anything, you know, I'm not advocating people jumping the fence or throwing them, but you, you pay your money. It's theatre. You can do whatever you want. If you want to boo the villains, go for it. I've got a very thin skin, Faf. Yeah. He's, well said. He's oh. a particularly unlikable character, I think. And he was unlikable before the whole mint gate. Couldn't, couldn't Remember agree a couple more. of years ago, his old barking thing, describing the Australians as barking dogs? I couldn't agree more. But, I mean, you listen to some of the Australians um, talk about some of the abuse that they've copped on the boundary in South African grounds. I think a bit of booing is... is you've got to be bigger than that as a test captain, don't you? I think he... He he got he he dealt, he sort of got into a, a a real whingy kind of mode after the game. Rob, are we being too uh, Australian in this one? No, I think that's a, a fair enough point. That um, I was probably more comfortable with the booing when he came out as opposed to after getting that hundred. It was a, a reasonably impressive hundred, but having been there, I thought it was more a smattering of boos that it was probably a lot more applause than than boos. And for him then to come out after play on that day and say he was quite unimpressed with the booze is obviously just going to kick along the issue and make sure he gets even more booze um, the rest of the match. Exactly. Probably lucky for him he's going home now. Now let's, let's go and analyse the Adelaide Test match. Australia won the Test by seven wickets. South Africa declared on the first day at nine for 259 while uh, Faf and Shamsi were smashing the Australian attack all around the ground, but they thought it would be a good opportunity to get Australia to bat under lights. And I think it backfired there when they didn't get any wickets. And I just think the, the whole test from there, really, Australia took, took it with Usman Khawaja and really dominated. Yeah. It was the coming of age for Uzi in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I've been advocating for probably the best part of three years that that is the... You know he's got the best test technique out of any Australian batsman, and we need to stick by him. And I can't he, believe he, he was dropped in Sri Lanka. Temperament with technique in that innings, because the discipline to leave the ball consistently outside off stump, not play of any of those flashy drives that he's known for off the back or front foot. It, it was just a tremendous innings, full of composure. Well, I think the biggest knock on him by teammates is probably that he was too docile, and yet that calmness at the crease combined with application and technique um, as as we've seen at, at um, first class level for Queensland I mean it can be a great combination when he gets it right and I think we just the, the, the debate about Uzi is now over he's a lock for number three for the next decade for me and he should never have been dropped as many times as he has been over the last three years I think Faf might have thrown up something here I mean I know Renshaw deserves another chance but what about Warner and Kawaja yeah. as openers. I mean, obviously, Langer and Hayden were so successful as left-handers. I, I think that could really work. What What about... I'll, I'll even go for something more revolutionary. What about we go for a traditional test opening partnership like Kawaja and Renshaw and put your attacking bats, your most attacking batsman in number three and actually have Warner batting number three? Rob, do you think Warner would want to bat number three? Uh, 
Can't imagine he necessarily would. And uh, look, I I'm, think that's I'm, the first wild theory for this podcast. <laughs> it's Let's a little just chuck there, out the world's best opener <laughs> and move him to a spot where he might fail. It's a little bit out there, but um, yeah, it, it'll be very interesting. I mean, there was a bit of talk pre um, the first test about Usman opening. I don't think it was ever really going to happen, but it's certainly an option that's there for them, isn't it? Rob, was that the best innings you've ever seen Kawaja play? Yeah, certainly the best innings I've seen Kawaja play and up there for, I mean, when's the last time you've seen an Australian score a century like that, conditions like that, the quality of the attack that was there. Um, you know, we were talking about in Adelaide and probably you'd have to go all the way back to um, that South African series over there in, um, in 2014. Now, some other great performances in the match. Steve Smith came out and batted well in both innings, partnered Kawaja and they got a really good partnership. Menace, I, hope I hope we're going to hear about your great performances in Adelaide later as well. Uh, yeah, sure. They were amazing. You know, watching the cricket. At the bar. Yeah, at the bar, drinking Coke Zero. Now, with uh, Steve Smith, played a great knock, ran himself out. I want to ask you all this question. Does Australia have a run-out problem? In all three test match, crucial batsmen have been run out. I am mystified. When you're in a test match, should you be really pushing that hard to rotate the strike that you're losing crucial wickets throughout a series? I don't think so. Very fair point, and particularly in, in Adelaide, they weren't sort of uh, near misses or anything like that, were they? They, yeah. were, they were pretty bad runouts. And then Ferguson in Hobart, Warner in Perth. Well, well, Why both, give them a chance at easy wickets? But both of the runouts in Adelaide, I think, were the fault of the batsman on strike hitting it to a, a fielder and running. I think both of the, the non strikers were well within their rights to send them back. Is that how you saw it, Macca? I think. The problem with Usman and Steve Smith was that I don't, I don't, you know, it was a risky single, and Smith went, and then Kawaja went as well, and then Kawaja stopped. If yeah. Kawaja had said no straight away, it would have been fine, but that obviously didn't happen. But uh, yeah, I think if you had to choose, I think it was Smith's fault. Yeah. Now some other great performances from this Test match: Mitchell Stark, an all-round performance, scored a half century and took six wickets for the game. Hadn't scored a half century in Test cricket for a couple of years. Thought that was an excellent knock, and just shows his all-round value. And he seems to bat better the higher he is up the order. And the confidence really fed into his bowling, didn't it? Like the, the way he came out with the new ball after that innings was was very impressive. He, he was unplayable at times in that spell. I mean, when he hits his spots and he's up around one hundred and fifty clicks and he's swinging the ball a bit he's he is the most dangerous bowler in world cricket when he's in that kind of form and him and hazelnut combined so well and i'm just this nickname is going to stick so i'm going to keep <laughs> you're the only one calling him it <laughs> i'm going to keep going until it sticks uh, hazelnut we can call him nutella eventually it'll get there Ooh. but hazelnut bowled really well in the test match uh they're just such a great pairing well i don't know who said it in the paper yesterday but you know they, they could be the best opening pairing ever and of course we'll throw up tomo and lily yeah. Um, but, Menes, I know you're a massive fan of Hazelnut. I mean, you know, he's always been compared to McGrath. It's incredible to think that he might even be better than McGrath, you know? That's... Well, he's got about 450 <laughs> test that. wickets to go, so but the jury's out on that he start, one. He started well. I think, you know, um, look at Jackson Bird's performance. I think, wasn't it a terrible selection in, in the first two tests to go, or in the, in the second test to go with many over Bird? I oh. think... Terrible. Think, you know, the three of them as a triumvirate of, of pace um, look very strong. And you add Pattinson um, and possibly Cummins to the mix. It's a, it's a very strong 
bevy of fast bowling, isn't it? In Australia, I mean, I know injury moment. is affecting the selection, but part of the problem for this unit is that third quick seems to be constantly juggled around. And I think Bird, they should stick with Bird. I love Bird. And that excellent ball on the fourth morning where the match was evenly poised and he came in and got to cock in his first over of the day. It was probably the most crucial wicket of the test match and just showed that he, he really is a good, consistent foil for Stark and Hazelwood. It's a fair point, and you'd think, certainly, you know, fitness pending, that these three quicks would play the um, the rest of the summer, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think they have to. So, great victory for the Australians, morale-boosting victory. Uh, it wasn't, what, 6-0 like I predicted, or 13-0 by the end of India, so we've, we've put pay to <laughs> And you predicted 3-0 to Australia and Sri Lanka, so no more predictions, please, Manners. <laughs> but I want to talk about the winners and losers from the Test match. We talked about Matty Renshaw in detail, but do we think he'll hold his place when Shaw Marsh comes back? Um, I think he probably will. I think if Sean Marsh comes back into the team, it'll probably be slotting into the, the middle order somewhere there if they've sort of picked Five Renshaw. Five and, and goes down to six. Yeah, most likely. And if they've picked Renshaw and said he's he's going to be our long-term opener, I think they're going to give him um, a decent chance to, to, to show why. I mean, as you love a nickname, you've, you've avoided my uh, attempts to lure this one. But what about Rick Shaw for Renshaw? He, you know, he just conjures up that he doesn't look pretty... He's all over the shop, but he gets the job done, just like a rickshaw. Well, he added some drama to the end of the Adelaide test because, you know, his innings were so slow and the dinner break was looming. And I think most of the crowd and, and probably the players mm. and Rob in the box was yeah, just the hoping... journalists on deadline were we're, sweating. We yeah. were just hoping that he would they would get the winning runs before they had to take a 40-minute dinner break. So uh, Renshaw added some drama, but I like Rickshaw. And I think Thank you. I think they should persist with him, but I think I can as soon late. as we get to India, he has to be the first man he, he, dropped. No, no he's him. a Rickshaw. Rickshaw's working no, in no, India, no, mate. He's, he's got the condition. worst technique for India, propping forward like that. Matt. He'll get caught on the crease. Nah. Macca, a, a, a metaphor that requires three minutes of... of <laughs> Elaboration and description is probably lacking in no, we've impact. Got, we've got time, and um, but Rob was 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 Renshaw fair dinkum? He said, I mean, he played and missed. More well, he's not top. fair dinkum. He looks like a pom. Well, mate, Have you seen his mug? The first time I saw him in a, <laughs> a an Aussie uniform, I was like, this is a pommy bloke in an Aussie uniform. Well, uh, Rob, he he is he, was he fair dinkum? He played and missed. I don't know how many times, but he in a, in later press conference, I think he said you were probably there. That that's how he leaves the ball to play and miss. Is that what he what I heard him say? Uh, I didn't see those comments, but um, that, that would be an interesting approach. That, that was they, not that, sorry. I was just going to say they. Um, the other thing to note about him, Usman Khawaja, he's captain at Queensland, came out and said you you probably only see one side of Matt that he does have an ability to take on attacks and charge down the wicket to uh, spinners and whatnot. So maybe we'll see that in time, but um, yeah. I've seen him more dominant at shield level. Yeah. I just think he, he sort of got in a particular mode and he couldn't get out of it. And the South Africans were probing that spot outside off stump really effectively. So he showed some temperament. You yeah. like a bit of temperament, don't you, Joe? I, I do. I think it's it's interesting that we're talking now again about the ability to bat time as a, you know, a, a precious commodity for a test batsman. I think that's got a, a few elements to it, and partly because the balance between bat and ball seems to be, um, you know, righted somewhat. And I don't know whether that's the impact of the, you know, the 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 
day night test and the pink ball. And we're going to talk about that. And we will. But Mena's impressions on the pink ball is coming. But just before we get onto that, how is Sean Marsh even in consideration? I mean, that guy has had more lives than any other test player I can imagine. Every second test. He's got a century and a 50 in his last two test matches. Yeah, but Mena's, he can't stay fit for more than two tests in a row. What, you know, I think Ian Chappell was talking a couple of days ago about calling time on his career. Your man BJ said the same thing. He insinuated that perhaps Sean Marsh was soft and I think his old man Swampy would have played with four broken fingers yeah I'm not sure whether if his name wasn't Marsh whether he would have got as many chances as he has that's the podcast first conspiracy theory today Menas <laughs> alright now let's get back to winners and losers from the Adelaide test I want to talk about Matty Wade the record wicket keeper I've been waiting for this <laughs> I'm going to say massive loser um should we just let James rant about this? For well, he can. He's going no, to. No, no, I'm, I'm prepared to have... I, I'm, I really want your impressions upon it. No. Oh, it was an interesting selection, wasn't it? Um, but how I did think he perform, they, Rob? Well, not overly well, obviously. I mean, he missed but, at least one chance, maybe two? Yeah. he will, I think there was the, the one bad chance, wasn't there, where he didn't go for it and Matt Renshaw was in an awkward position. Um, didn't get runs. Again, it's it's one game, though. If you've, he did sledge a lot, though. He did. He was very, very vocal, wasn't he? But in, inane, Paul would have just been doing his block, just saying, well, bold, Gaz, it's silly, isn't it? So, but I mean, that's the interesting thing now, isn't it? Like, Peter Neville's obviously got a lot of runs, so they... They probably won't go back to him immediately, but at which point do you make the call? Obviously, coming up to India, where Neville's glove work's going to be um, even more important. It's interesting that there was a lot of comment that his presence on the field was what got him picked. So, you know, to me, that is a bit of a, a concern that Smith, as a captain, doesn't have the ability to get his team up or doesn't have enough aggression himself, and he needs to bring in an attack dog who's, you know, clearly not as skillful well, actually, keeper. Don't point the finger at Smith. I think you should be looking at David Warner. Smith has a lot to worry about. Warner's the vice captain. His new nickname is the Reverend because he's as quiet as a saint <laughs> on the field, and he used to be the one that used to rile everyone up. So, you know, there's been a dramatic shift in tone on the field with Neville being a bit quieter. Warner toning it down. So I think that you're right, Joe, that, you know, I don't think a keeper should be picked because he's vocal. But Peter Neville was completely stitched upright. I mean, his, his glove work has been near impeccable. He's, you know, I think he was averaging mid-30s with the bat. So they've, they've basically put him to the sword to bring in a guy who's apparently a, a professional sledger. But it's a sort of an intangible. Sometimes that you add a fiery character to a mix, a team, it can stir things up a bit. And I know, you know, people want to point to his catching and everything. And I look, I'm a massive Neville For fan. For a keeper. Well, imagine no, fancy but, doing that. <laughs> but I just mean that it, there, there is some intangible element to a fiery character. What do you think about that theory, Rob? Oh, uh, I think primarily he should be getting picked on his um, on his keeping and his batting and the way he batted in Perth was just was fantastic for the situation. I mean, if Neville. one or two teammates Neville batted like him, they they may well have salvaged a draw and be a um, a very different story. Well, can I point out here? So we're picking people on the aggression they bring on one hand. We're also people picking picking people on feel. It's a very strange selection policy. My only problem, my main problem was that, you know, of course the keeper's the fulcrum of the team, he's the core, mm. the heart of the team, and to change the keeper traditionally in Australian cricket has been, you know, look at what happened when we moved from here to Gilchrist, there was such angst, such drama, and obviously it was the right decision, but they just flicked him as though it was, you know, it's the day old piece of bread. I just don't understand why it was such a decision taken so lightly when 
he, he, there, was, there wasn't anything to back it up. I agree wholeheartedly with Macker. In fact, I think you know, Lehman came into this job saying that he wanted people feeling more secure about their places. And I think, if anything, we're further away from that being the case than we ever have been. I mean, yeah. I know that we've debuted more people in the last six years than we did in the previous... I mean, 19 Australian players played in a three-match series. That's based almost two teams. It's embarrassing. It's England from the 90s. It's ridiculous. And you see that ceremony before for a game and there's now like three and four caps being handed out I would like to us to go back to a time where if you got picked in the Australian test team you were given two series or ten tests to prove yourself and particularly I, I agree I with Matt. I think they've done Mitchell that. Marsh was yeah Mitchell Marsh Neville they've all been given that's because he's a Marsh right so yeah but I know what you're saying the thing they've got to do now is stick with some of these guys yeah, and, and funnily enough, it seems to be completely arbitrary that now after one good performance, suddenly, you know, Renshaw and, and Hanscom and others are the new generation that are going to take us forward when, you know, it's, it's just a lot of mixed messages coming from the selections. Now to one player that may have saved his career, Nathan Lyon. I think it was pretty much laid out by the announcement by Trevor Hones when they sort of said, would Stephen O'Keefe have been picked? I don't think uh, uh, Trevor Hones would be a good poker player because it was pretty <laughs> obvious that Nathan Lyon wouldn't have been picked if Stephen O'Keefe hadn't had a, a hamstring or a, th- a strain in his leg. And then what we did have was Nathan Lyon on that third evening pick up some crucial wickets and perhaps prolong his uh, career. Winner or loser, Rob? Uh, definitely a winner. Yeah, a couple of very key wickets and just a burst of wickets when the, the game was in the balance in that night session. Um, and, yeah, certainly I think it's fair to say all but would have been dropped if um, if uh, Steve O'Keefe was fit. I mean, he got to sing the song as well, old Gaz. It might yeah. be the last time he does. Because so, so I'd still pick Stephen O'Keefe for the next match. I think there were times in, in Adelaide where Lyon did lack penetration and again and... He got a bit... I mean, J.P. Dumini played a horrible shot to what was ultimately a fairly straight delivery that got him on that run. But I think, again, going back, I think we've got to get away from short-term thinking. And this is a guy who's taken more test wickets than any other off-spinner for Australia. I think you, if, if a guy... If you, if you take a view on a guy that he's got the capability and the character, you stick with him through the tough periods. Everyone is going to have peaks and troughs in their career. Warney had them. You've got to stick with the players that are made of the right stuff. But consistent problem is bowling sides out in the fourth innings. And I think it's been a problem that's been right throughout his career. And I think he has been the best we've had, but perhaps he's not anymore. And Stephen O'Keefe, who has a, a phenomenal first-class record, deserves a decent shot to see oh, if he can... They'll ha- probably he- both play in India, right? So it'll be a, a moot point, but... I was just going to say online, he, he did do a good job of that. I know that's, you know, the constant knock on him. He did do a good job of that against India a couple of years ago at Adelaide Oval. So I think getting back to Adelaide Oval probably helped him. And the other thing is, how can you, you know, possibly expect a spinner to, to play well when you're looking at some of those titles that Australia have been putting up? Man, as I, Fair point. I, 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 prepared, I was preparing to come on the show today, issue a heartfelt apology to the line because we did give it to him. And that spell late on the third evening, he, it was just unplayable some of those deliveries Dukoku I know he'd just come in and it's how bad it is to bat under lights but he didn't get near those last balls in that over it was like you know the old ad when Warney had the chainsaw so uh, Lyon was you know the panel was fantastic. is divided it's amazing what Nathan Lyon starts. Like just, he looked a different bowler didn't he yep so that was the uh, Adelaide test before we move on I think it's important that we I can reflect on my first 
experience of a day-night test and sort of talk about the pink ball. And and to be honest, it's just like uh, it seemed to live up to everything I expected. At times it's easy to see. At times it's very difficult to see. The times I found really difficult in that sort of middle session, if the, the ball's a bit faded, it's really hard to see before the lights take effect. But also in the afternoon session, if the pink ball's a bit bright and the Adelaide Oval was quite light, it was kind of hard to pick up the ball, and and I'm pretty good at watching, you know, you know where the ball's going to go from the shot and stuff. And even then, it was hard. What do you think, Rob? It's not a great, it's not as great at the ground as it is on TV, is it? I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is that um, it was a lot better in this test. Like you compare this test to the first day night test for both players and viewers. I think it was was um, was a lot better. Yeah. I Man, it's obviously you know I'm not saying anything you don't know, and it obviously it's only the television is the only thing that matters, and and it's just such a fantastic spectacle on television. And that last session when it's prime time mm. into the eastern states and. And obviously in South Australia as well. It's just such great theatre. It's great watching. And there's so many people watching. People aren't at work. They're not at the park with their kids or whatever. Everybody's watching. And that's how cricket's gone. That's where it's growing. I I just think it's fantastic. I'm glad it's here to stay. Man, as I'm a massive traditionalist in the game in lots of respects. And this was my first pink ball test. I was away for the first one. And so it was on trial in my mind. Huge hit for me. I mean, great viewing product. Um, You know, the only question I'll put to you guys is it has changed the tactics of test match cricket quite a lot. You know, the... If you're batting in the last 15 overs of the day, it's a distinct disadvantage. So it has actually changed some of the long-standing dynamics of Test Match Cricket where you want to you know, manipulate the, the game so that you're not batting in the crucial last 15 overs. Is that, is that your read on it? Absolutely. Look at that declaration from Faf on day one. That's... You know, you wouldn't see that in, in certainly in a regular test match. And um, yeah, I think tactics on the whole are, are a little bit different. It's still, it's not quite at that entrenched sort of spot. There's still a little bit of experimental um, phase about it, which, uh, you know, in time will, I think it'll become normal. Well, not quite normal in that there'll be five day night tests, but it'll be a regular feature in, um, in summer. Well, well, just announced the Ashes will mm. feature a day night test next year in Adelaide. But the one thing about Adelaide is it's light very late. So the lights didn't really kick in till eight. I think when they play the Gabba day night test, the lights will kick in maybe an hour or two earlier unless they're off for a thunderstorm. But that's a, another question. But as the Pakistanis just lost nine wickets in a session, didn't they, against um, New Zealand down in Hamilton? I mean, if their batting's that fragile and ours is that fragile, anything could happen in Brisbane but I think Rob I'm not sure did Australia seem to indicate that if wickets kept falling I think it wasn't the second evening that they would have declared as well yeah, yeah. That, that's it if um, if there are a few more wickets there they would have declared um, Darren pretty much Darren Lehman pretty much said that so it definitely has changed the game a little bit in that regard that you know not every session's equal and even just the, the flow of the day the fact that that second session follows um, so quickly it just has a different feel about it doesn't it? I think that's a great thing and I think also South Africa were willing to stuff around when they were trying to get to the new ball just with the bits and pieces bowlers because they want, obviously wanted to save their bowlers and, and to get to that they wanted to time when they got the the new ball, the pink ball under lights. So I just think it adds another fantastically interesting dimension to the game. In it. it also adds a lot of extra time for the Adelaide patrons to drink. And I noticed a lot of very inebriated patrons at the Adelaide Oval. It had the feeling of the SCG like, you know, 20 years ago before all the rules Those, those were good in. times, man. Good the, times. Um, the booing for Faf was definitely a little bit louder the longer, it, uh, the later in the night it was, wasn't it? And it was raucous on the Adelaide Hill. God, it was great. Mm. I had a seat 
for one of the days where I was next to the hill but not in it. So I could just sort of see what was going on and it was just a great little event to watch. Yeah, and, and for me, my favourite part of a test was always the first two hours when the ball was nipping around a lot. I think it's a, a great outcome that it seems to have balanced up the competitiveness between bat and ball and, you know, the, the quicks get a, a chance to kind of nip it around through the, the entire test. I think it, it, it also will mean that, you know, for the Australians who have had a, a weakness against the moving ball, perhaps, you know, we'll, we'll now face conditions that are more similar to, say, a, a seeming English wicket than we were used to just batting on roads at home. That's it. And just a almost a perfect um, test wicket, wasn't it? Yeah. You, look, you had three batsmen score centuries, all of them hard fought. There were runs in the wicket. You just had to apply yourself. Well, a great mood lifter for Australian cricket, that victory in Adelaide. And South Africa can go home. Deserving winners, congratulations. All the South African and English fans. God, the English fans have been loving the last few podcasts. Uh, congratulations. Well done. Now, before we go on and preview the Chapel Hadley Trophy that's about to begin, I just want to talk about the Have A Go Your Mug mug promotion. If you go on iTunes and leave a review for the show or leave a review for the show on whatever app you listen to the show, you will go in the draw, the draw for a Have A Go Your Mug mug. If you don't want to leave a review but you want a mug, go on to Patreon, subscribe to the show for $5 a month or more, and I will give you a mug straight away. Macca, have you been getting the royalties from the sales of the mugs? Have they well, started flowing? Macca gave his mug away, and it's not a sale. Uh, it's a giveaway. Now, we've got four people... No in, comment. We've got four people in the draw this week. We've got Charlie Powder, we've got James Wharf, who left a Stitcher review, we've got M. Luke, and we've got... 828LMO, which is either a person or a robot. Now, Rob, as you're a guest, I'm going to get you to draw out the winner of the mug this week. Honoured to be doing this. Yeah. Uh, James, congratulations. Well done, James. Thank you for leaving the Stitcher review. Your Have A Go, Your Mug mug will be coming out to you shortly. Now, let's talk about the upcoming Chapel Hadley Trophy. It's a three-match, one-day series, starting at the SCG. Then they move on to Marnica Oval in Canberra and finish up at the MCG. Rob, you're going to have to help me with this. They play three matches now for the trophy, and then they play three more in New Zealand at the end of the season for the trophy. That's right, yeah, between, um, I think, late January, early Feb. Perfect um, time before the Indian Tour to get that. (laughs) <laughs> just seamless, isn't it? Yeah. Scheduling just gets yeah. better, doesn't it? So we've lo- we don't hold the Chapel Hadley Trophy. New Zealand hold it. New Zealand hold it. Yeah, they won a um, a series earlier. Remember this that year controversial Mitch Marsh. That's uh, right. Steve Smith getting uh, getting so, booed at the ceremony. Yep. Yeah, so we could win back the Chapel Hadley Trophy for like six weeks, and then we have to play for it again. So slightly hollow, uh, but it's on home turf. There's some key selections for the Australian team that I want to talk about. Firstly, the two players that are back, Glenn Maxwell and Pat Cummins, are we happy with their selections for the one-day side? Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, it's great to see Pat back. I think it's been um, a tick over a year since he's played an international, so uh, that's a good sign. I think. It's a kick in the teeth, though, for John Hastings, though. He's the leading wicket-taker in one-day international cricket, and this young bloke who's hardly played any cricket for a couple of years swans in through the high-performance unit and takes his spot. Now, I can see why Hastings is spitting chips in Victoria. He's been unfairly treated. And as much as I love Cummins, go and play some state cricket. Go and get some overs under your belt. 
I think Pat's a, a sort of unique situation in that Cricket Australia have recognised the sort of talent that he has, and that well, and Hastings they, doesn't have that sort of. Oh, talent? he definitely does has does have um, does have talent. I don't know how how fit Hastings is. I know he's had an injury recently. I don't know if he's a hundred percent or maybe they want him to to build up a bit more fitness. But well, unfortunately, he did a and came out and said to the press he wasn't happy. So he no, good, he's got on record. Good on him for being honest. Um, but yeah, he's, he's certainly got a, a fair claim. But, but it's I one of those think, ones where do you who do you leave out? Well, Pat Cummins. I mean, I just think what you said, Joe, is what is our method for selection? If someone comes on and does so well for Australia and Hastings, when he was bowling in the One Day Internationals, I was saying he should be considered for a test spot. And all of a sudden, the wheel turns a little bit through no fault of Hastings, and he's on the scrap heap. I think it's a confusing it's selection. A, it's a curious. He was. He was. What was he? But. Well, he has been one of our best performers recently in one day cricket, hasn't he? I mean, who? obviously there's a new selection panel and obviously they've decided he's just not going to be there. There's, I mean, there's so many things about our selections that lack long-term view and consistency. And I know you wanted to talk about Kawaja Menas. Wasn't Kawaja talked about as the finest you know, player in all three formats of the game 12 months ago? And now Even he's less being... than that. At the end of the last hmm. domestic summer, he was putting together a case for the one-day side that was... You couldn't leave him out, and now he's he's not even in the squad. This is again an issue with the the schedule, isn't it? Though I mean, I'm personally not that unhappy about Usman going and playing a, a day night shield game for Queensland before that first test against Pakistan, but it's obviously a question of priorities and whatnot. And you'd imagine that he is in our um our best uh, best one day team. Well, what would he rather do? He'd rather be playing cricket for Australia, wouldn't he? Of course, of course he, he would. would. Another player to watch out for that's been called up to the Australian squad for the first time is a young Hilton Cartwright. He's a, an all-rounder. He bats and bowls medium-fast, would you say, Rob? That's right, yeah. Born in Zimbabwe, so there's another one for the um, the Poms to get excited about. I'm going to have to edit that bit out. Um, no way. Um, yeah, but look, uh, Hilton Cartwright... Hilton Cartwright has looked so good in his appearances for the CA11. I think this is a quite a good selection to get someone in there around the squad who they see as possibly, uh, you know, a future number six and bowls a few overs. All right, and let's move on to the New Zealand side. There's a couple of surprises there. They've got they've got their new quick that's taking the world by Storm, Colin de Grandhomme has a great mo on him, so that should be good to watch. And then they've picked uh, they've picked uh, Lockie Ferguson, a really young quick bowler who hasn't been to Australia before. So I'd look out for those two quicks in the upcoming series. What do we think? I think the Aussies should win this series on home soil. Anyone prepared to back the Kiwis? The Kiwis always just they always give it. They always put it up a great fight, don't they? But I, I think we'll win. Be a significantly different attack to um, the Australian one that was beaten over in South Africa, won't it? With Stark, Hazelwood, and Cummins there, a little bit more pace. Yeah, well, there's no many and Boland to, and what was the other one? Who was the the other quick from South Australia that they brought over? Worrell. No, none of those blokes. So we should have a chance. All right, let's move on now to the commentator critique segment. Now, Joe, you've got some input on this commentator critique segment. Should we start off with talking about the ABC coverage? What do you think of... I actually love when I'm in a test match listening to the radio while I'm watching. So I, I switched between Macquarie and ABC Grandstand and really gave a good assessment of them. What do you think of the ABC coverage at the moment? Well, I think if the, the most important position in Australian cricket is the test cap and one of the the, mo, the second most important positions is anchor for the ABC um, radio commentary, 
commentary. And I think, you know, we've seen succession from Jim Maxwell to Jared Waitley, who's a bit of a jack of all trades, bit of a, you know, bit of a the librarian come, come um, cricket commentator. I'm not sure if he's got enough personality and enough depth of knowledge in cricket to really hold that position. I mean, I, I respect Jared Waitley, but I... I sort of recoil with the thought of thinking that he's going to be the voice of summer for our next 20 years, like a Jimmy Maxwell or a Richie Bonneau has been. He doesn't have that kind of... Gravitas. Gravitas. It's uh, hard, um, very hard following Jim, isn't it? It's like all the uh, spinners that were tried after warning. Uh, yeah, but I do agree with you. I think, you know, Jared's obviously cut his teeth in the AFL world, hasn't yeah. he? He's a respected uh, reporter, commentator, pundit there and I, I don't know if he can jump to another horse no I think his his um you know what he brings is great preparation he is one of the best research guys you'll come across but that doesn't translate into being able to actually call sport so I think he he has he, he doesn't have the ability to really I guess get over the emotion of a moment he he sort of he sort of oscillates between, you know, the very, very detailed description and just screaming. He doesn't seem to have that ability to really paint a, a, a picture for the for the listener. I think it is, it, like, as Rob pointed to, it's a tough transition, isn't it? And let, let's all hope Jim recovers well, but who knows? Yeah. And and it's like, you know, moving on from Richie to Menes' new favourite, Mark Nicholas. It's just a very difficult period for viewers who've grown up with these voices. Yeah. Well, Menes and I were talking um, offline about, you know, who are, who have been the greatest both voices of cricket and analyzers of a game. You know, the, and I'm thinking of people like Benno, Cozier, Tim Lane. Um, you know, we don't have a new generation emerging of that quality, do we? I think that the ABC experts and Nanis, Kadic and Rogers kind of warmed to them during this test match. I thought... So did I. I think the experts for Macquarie Radio are just as good, and they had you know Matthews, Chapel, Barry Richards, um, Glenn McGrath, Carl Rackerman was an interesting one on Macquarie Radio. Um, was an interesting one, but I think the two sets of experts on both radios are pretty close. But the hosts from Macquarie Radio with Tim Lane and Bruce Eva or Beva as they, or Beva as they like to call him, um, they were slightly better than Jared Waitley and Quentin Hull. To your point, Joe. Yeah, on the radio, and I have to say the Channel Nine commentary for all of the criticism that I heaped on them when they had Brayshaw, um, you know, playing a prominent role. I think the the changes that have been made to the Channel Nine commentary have have really improved the the quality. Um, albeit, there's still a lot of jibber that goes on. There is, but yeah, I think you know people love to bag Channel Nine, don't they? But I, 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 I you're right. I, I think it's grown. Macca loves good. KP and Puppy well, loves. He, he has a go. Clubs. He says he's I mean, got an know, opinion. Yeah, he's got an opinion. He's not always scared, scared to have a crack. And I think Healy's better. I think Tubby's better. And you know, Michael Clark's improving as well. It's the good one, to have. I was going to say a voice in there that's not Australian, isn't yeah. it? Just adds a bit. Uh, the the one criticism I'd make of the Channel Nine commentary is they tend to be sycophants to the Australian team. Not enough. Distance, like get even, behind him, cheerleading. Yeah, even even Clarky, like I feel like Clarky very rarely, you know, apart from in his book, says something controversial. He seems to be the 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 master of playing a straight bat. I, st- I still think he has improved. I think you know we spoke about how earnest he was, and he's keen to improve as a commentator. And I think he is getting better. Yeah. 
Well, that's the commentary critique segment for this week. To end the Adelaide test, I was in a bar and Ian Chappell, Mark Nicholas and Greg Matthews were all giving me dirty looks about this segment. So uh, I'm sure they're listening. exactly who you were, mate. They're listening. Now, let's finish this show with Read and React. And Read and React this week is actually this very own podcast. I'm lucky enough to have two test cricketers on the show this week. Started the week off with Hoggy, Brad Hogg, talking about his new book, The Wrongin. And then I had a chat with... uh, the current coach of the Australian cricket team, Darren Lehman, about his new book, cleverly called Coach. Now, let's start with Read and React because there's some interesting stuff that came out, especially from Hoggy's interview. Hoggy said some really good stuff. I was talking to him about the pathways in Australian cricket and he said he played in a grade game recently where four players, three in one side and one from another, were both re- were all restricted to 10 overs each in a 90-over-a-day game. So you, so what he's saying is the, the pathways and the high-performance unit are saying these young blokes can only bowl 10 overs in a grade game, and yet there's still 60 overs to go. And Hogg said this is not only bad for the bowler, but it's bad for the whole game because when the batsmen come out, they're not facing the best bowlers, and it just brings the whole standard of the grade comp down, and Hoggy thinks that they're messing with it too much. I couldn't agree more, men, as I think traditionally one of the strengths of Australian cricket has been both the uh, suburban grade competitions and the first-class Sheffield Shield competition being such a tough test of of one's capability that it is it has been the ultimate um, you know, training ground, test ground. Um, That's been worn away by your very good friend Pat Howard, Joe. I think in one of the first shows you called for his sacking going back... <laughs> Three years. Don't so. get me started, men. Have a look on the Raw. The day that guy was appointed, I said it was a terrible appointment. I can't believe he's lasted over five years in the role. I think his contract comes up mid-next year. Um, but Goodbye, as good- James says. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, the Robin, maybe you can help us out here. The, the thing I don't understand about, saying, you know, this loading is, it, it's a bit like, you know, when you take a me- when you when they get a new medicine, okay, you take this medicine for ten or twenty years. We know what effects it has on the body or people. I, I don't really understand that. Okay, we're going to only let Mitchell Stark bowl for one innings of a shield game. How do they know that that makes it better if we haven't done it before? I just I don't understand. Uh, I think they've they've sort of tried to look as much evidence as that they that they can. But uh, the thing they worry a lot about, um, I can't really talk about grade games and whatnot, but is the, is the workload spike. So in someone like Stark's case, they were a bit worried about him going, jumping from, you know, 10, 20 overs to 40 overs or 50 overs or whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, certainly. And um, Brad isn't alone. I saw the um, the comments from Dan Christian, I think in the, um, the Australian paper recently about players being guinea pigs in the Sheffield Shield and whatnot. And, whether there's just a bit too much tinkering in um, in that uh, that level. Well, Jeff Lawson described said they were using the Sheffield Shield as a science experiment. Mm. So, well, another thing that Hoggy said that was really interesting. He thinks modern players need to take more responsibility for their own career and stand up against the high performance unit. That's what he was insinuating. You know, you make decisions that are best for you because in the end it's your career and you're going to be judged by your own performances. So don't let yourself be manipulated by the high performance unit. Men, as I think without segueing into the the next segment and talking about Darren Lehman who talked a lot about coaching philosophy, I think we have not yet settled um, between two polar opposite views of of cricket coaching um, and the system you put around it. On the one hand, you've got sort of the sports scientists, you know, you when when we had, you know, IT and, and 
technical analysis being brought in you know under the john buchanan era and on the other end of the spectrum you've still got ian chapel holding this view that a coach is only there to drive the team to the to the um ground and open a few beers after the the game and the best form of, of recovery is to you know sink half a dozen beers i think we you know we we are sort of oscillating between those diametrically opposed positions and where are we going to settle not sure, but Lehman did say in the interview that I had with him about that, that he takes bits and pieces from everywhere in, in, and sort of uses bits and pieces. And he did stress, and I think reading his book, it is impossible now for the Australian team not to have a coach. I mean, there's just too much pressure. So I agree. And if you look at a sport like NFL in the, in the United States or any you know, highly professionalized sport, it has evolved. And, you know, sports science plays a part and hydration in, in every sport in the world. So I think it's a bit of a, you know, the, the Shane Warney and Chapel School of Thought, I think, is a bit of a romantic view. Um, you know, that, that can't survive anymore in an era where pe- people are getting paid multi-million dollars and, and it's mm. a fully professional sport. Well, man, I think in, in your interview for your fantastic interview with Darren Lehman, I think Darren obviously mentioned that, you know, the coach needs to take, in, in this uh, age of great media scrutiny, the coach helps to take the pressure off the captain, which is an important um, point of it. And the fact that Darren lauded that they have the psychologist within the side, which you can understand with the demands of the of the modern game and all the travelling and, and the constant scheduling, that, that you can understand. I think most person, people can understand that you need a psychologist within the setup, and and as and obviously you need a coach as well. You need these people within the support group, surely. With what you're saying about the psychologist, one thing that really stood out to me was how he can fill that role where a player doesn't want to talk to the coach who is also a selector because you might feel it might affect you at the selection table if you tell the coach you know you're not sleeping at night because you got some worries well you won't want to tell that to someone that's going to make a decision on your future that the psychologist can be that uh, person in the middle to take that stuff on board and I hadn't considered that because I still have question marks over having the coach as a selector and not having the captain as one but that kind of answered that question a little bit I just want to go back to something Hoggy said because this is something that I always ask people that are involved with both the Big Bash and the IPL which standard is better of on-field play? And Hoggy's obviously played in both. And what I found really interesting was, firstly, he was diplomatic because he's playing in the BBL, but he did say that the IPL is a greater test of your skills. So the wickets vary more. There are more games you might play on spin one day, on pace the next. So you get a wider range of um, examination as a player. But he said that in the end, standard-wise, they're about side-by-side. We don't have the Indian players here as well, do we, of course? So if you're going to mount an argument the IPL is a better standard because it's got better players, you can probably accept that, can't you? I think so. Even look at someone like Steve Smith, he'll play more games in the IPL than uh, the Big Bash. And a couple more things from Hoggy's book I want to just touch on before I go. Uh, he talked about in the book that the W West Australians and the Victorians have a strong rivalry. And in all the cricket books I'm reading, everybody hates the Victorians. So it just seems to be a common theme. If you play for the Queens, that oh, I hate the Victorians. If you play for New South Wales, hate the Victorians. Uh, WA, hate. so. Are Victorians the villains of Australian cricket? Well, I think traditionally, you know, the guys like Brad Hogg. Rob's completely Brad stumped Hogg, with that one. I'm just smirking. <laughs> well, I think traditionally guys like Brad Hodge have probably played less games than they would have otherwise because they've been pretty unpopular in the dressing room. So I think that has 
had a part to play in it. Now, interestingly, Menas, without going too hard on the Blue Baggers lineup, it's great to see that the core of the team is back to a Blue Baggers heart. You know, Kawaja, Warner, Smith. Um, is the, the bias coming in? Listen, Stark. It's it's essentially the core is is being produced by New South Wales. Menas, just before we go, Kawaja's I want to talk a about Queenslander, isn't he? Who's that? Kawaja. Well, he grew up in Ramwick <laughs> in Sydney. That's never stopped them before. <laughs> Man, it's just before we go... I'd, Alan Board as a Mossman boy. I want to pick up on... A, Great and, and firstly, compliments Adelaide. on your interview with Darren Lehman. It was first class. Succession for the you Australian the coaching again. role, which we've assumed would you know we wouldn't be thinking about for a few years, but he actually put it on the table that if his son is selected in the test team, he might go earlier than that. It was a rev- an absolute scoop or revelation. Yeah, it was an exclusive for the Australian Cricket Podcast. Australian Cricket might have to decide in the next two years, Buff or Jake Lehman yeah. in the Australian squad. And if that question is forced upon us, I think See one you, of Buff. the... I think one of the failings of the Australian cricket setup in the last 10 years is that we haven't put the absolute cream of the crop from our golden era into senior positions. And I know, speaking of Scoop, um, Sam Scoop McClure in in Victoria had a great little grab from an interview with Ricky Ponting a couple of weeks ago where he basically said, if Cricket Australia call, I'm willing to look at anything. And, you know, whether that involves travel or not. So he's actually putting his hand up. Should we be looking at guys like Ponting and Clark as potential, you know, batting coaches or senior coaches in the setup? Because Lehman would play twenty seven tests. He wasn't part of the golden era. Well, I think well, maybe he Rob, he Rob, was part of Rob the can tell us. But as far as I understand, or maybe this is what I'm reading, Ricky Ponting is going to be part of the new world order in Australian cricket. And, and I keep reading that Steve War has indicated he yeah. wants to be part of it too. Mm, I'd be, certainly in Ponting's case, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't have a, a role with Cricket Australia in some capacity and they'd be crazy not to get him on board. Um, and obviously he's just left the um, IPL connection recently so he's got a got a bit more free time. What, what about Steve War, mate? Um, I'm not or quite. Or as I like to call him. <laughs> I'm not quite as sure about Stephen so much as I don't know in terms of his various commitments and free time and whatnot. Whether you just or not call he... him Stephen? Is that Steve or Stephen? <laughs> Mr. Wall. Mr. Wall. Sir. Well, guys, I think uh, we should wrap this podcast up. Um, one thing that was in Hoggy's book was he t- he actually took us took us inside that infamous boot camp that um, that Warney was so against. And one thing I've realised is that. I've cancelled the podcast boot camp because it's just too intense. Uh, it sounded like they really tried to break down the Aussie players. And, you know, there's not much written about what happened there. And it was pretty harrowing. So I've cancelled our boot camp. No worries, my, guys. My favourite ever cricket anecdote comes from the boot camp, which I will uh, share on an upcoming show because I know we're getting close to time. <laughs> no, that's the one. Tell us. Come on. It's Warney, isn't it? It's Warney. If I they've l- stuck around this long, a little <laughs> bit more Joeism won't help. All right. Some uh, bonus material here on the Australian Cricket Podcast. To cut a very long story short, I think at the start of that boot camp, all the players had to line up and there was a a list of, you know, approved items that they could bring and everyone put down the five items that they could put in their backpack. And Warney put down, you know, the water bottle and everything you'd expect. And then, you know, a bit of dramatic tension. The last thing that comes out of his pocket is a golden packet of B&H Extra Mild. And John Buchanan and the sergeant at arms or whoever it was said, Warney, what's going on here? And Warney looks at the packet, 
looks back in both of their eyes and says to them, if they don't go, the king doesn't go. (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to end the show. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for joining the podcast for the first time. It was a pleasure to have you on. I hope we can get you back in again for another chat. Thank you, Andrew. It was a a pleasure to be here. And yeah, we'd certainly love to. Great. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Macca. Great to be here, Menace. Thank you, mate. Listeners, thanks for downloading the show. Stay tuned for another bonus episode coming up. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.